I'm Stephen Wright, and you're listening to Last Days of Diana, a Beyond Reasonable Doubt series from Mail Plus. Episode 2, A World in Shock. When Diana was killed in a car crash in Paris in August 1997, her death sent shockwaves around the world. I'm Patrick Stinson with breaking news coverage. Princess Diana is seriously injured and two other people have died. Following... Welcome to this special National Nine News update and the news out of Paris on the condition of Princess Diana is not good. This she is, is now... the scene of that car crash and reports are they were being chased by paparazzi on motorcycles. Lady Diana. Lady Diana was much loved in France. She was modern, courageous and sensitive to human suffering. She had finalised her divorce from Prince Charles the year before, so was no longer officially part of the royal family. But as the mother of the heir to the throne, she was still closely linked to the institution. Her half-royal, half-not status had left her in a compromised position in terms of her security. And on her death, this caused further complications. Di Davies was head of royalty protection at Scotland Yard in the late 1990s. Di, the Met as an organisation, had contingencies in place for the Queen Mother dying, Prince Philip and so on. But I bet you didn't have a contingency for Princess Diana dying in a car crash in Paris. No, there was no such contingency plan. Every other senior royal, there is an operation under bridges, uh, various bridges for them, and it is a well tried and tested and a combination of what they want, what the state requires, and what the government of the day says. And, and these are carefully worked out plans by the palace themselves in conjunction with mm. the Met. And so, yes, there would be contingency plans, but there wasn't. And so people had to scratch their heads and come up with a solution, which they did fairly quickly. With no official plan of what should happen next, it was down to Diana's private office to go to Paris and assist in her return to the UK. Colin Tebbit, her driver and de facto bodyguard, was told, along with her butler, Paul Burrell, to get to Paris as quickly as they could. My partner, Liz, who's now my wife, and she was attempting to get myself and Burrell on the, the first plane out which was difficult because it was already full, I was told. But um, <clears throat> she managed to book me two seats. So uh, we were taken out to the um, private side of the airport because that was busy with people wanting to know what was happening. And we managed to get on the plane with no fuss. So you got on the plane in the early hours of the morning. What was the atmosphere like? Everybody was very nice to me, the, the staff, because they knew who we were. But everybody else seemed to leave us alone, and, and I wouldn't be speak to anybody in any case. I was quite sharp if anybody uh, approached me. Paul was in a dreadful state, and um, I just couldn't get him out of it. He was in deep shock. So you get there, you're with Paul Burrell, and he's still distraught, I, I'd yep. imagine. Yeah, he says it in his book. He, is, you know, he, never, he never recovered. No, it may be, to be fair to him, easier for you because you've got that police training, that police background. Lock Michael into... Gibbons said, Colin, switch on to being a DI again and uh, inspector and uh, go out there and be my uh, eyes and ears. So what happened when you landed? Because I'd worked quite a bit over there with various visits. The embassy came and picked me up from the plane, so that, that was very handy. 
the car was brought straight to the plane. I was taken off the plane and put in the car and taken straight to the uh, British ambassador. When you arrived at the British embassy, what was the mood like? Sir Michael J and Mrs J came down to meet us and I said to Paul then, I always remember these words, Paul, they're expecting major generals, they're expecting high government officials, not a driver, minder and a butler. You know, I was beginning to worry myself of what he was going to think of why they sent you. You know, what are you doing here? You know, this is this is the Princess of Wales. And so I'm working all this out in my mind, how I'm going to tackle all this. And uh, Sir Michael J came up and shook hands and said, Mr. Tebbett, thank you very much for coming. He said, you're the first uh, people we've met or had anything to do with on the princess's side. And thank you very much. Would you come with me? I was given a car and an escort, and uh, I set off to the hotel. I imagine you were relieved to have that help. How were you feeling at that moment? You, you know, I'm, I'm thinking on my feet now. I've been up since one o'clock. A lot of things happened in my life. I've lost my job. I've lost the boss. You don't like losing people when you're working for them. And I'm trying to work out what's the best way. You went to the Ritz hotels, that's correct, isn't it? Straight to the Ritz, yeah. Unfortunately, in the books, it says people that have written about it say I went straight to the hospital. I didn't. I went to the hotel. And what was the purpose of going to the Ritz? To retrieve the uh, boss's property. So she had a room there and she had her belongings, obviously. Yeah, that's where I expected her belongings to be because she was staying there. So what happened then when you got there? I asked to see various people. I did have a word that I can't use, which was a password that we used to use because I knew where their control room was and I'd been dealing with their control room in Park Lane. So I said, look, I'm going to give you a word. Please ring these people. Yeah, I will give you a word. That is a pass that will tell you who I am because they didn't know who I am from Adam. So they rang the control room in London, gave the password. It came back, yes. Yeah, then they could speak to me and told me immediately the property had left and the room had been cleaned. They'd been flown back with the um, body of Mr. L. Fired. So uh, that was the end of that. So uh, I said, right, to the French uh, man who was looking after me, to the hospital as soon as possible, please. Having relayed this information immediately to Michael Gibbons, of course, who I was in constant uh, contact with. I just wonder whether at this stage you were being updated on the circumstances of the death. Of course, it was all over the TV, but you'd no. been involved in a car accident. Just knew it was a car accident and the, and the boss was dead. As grim as that. You know, how it happened, when it happened, I've got to go and sort out. I've got to speak to somebody that knows all about it. At the moment, we're dealing with people that are on the periphery. She'd had the accident, she'd been taken to hospital, they tried to keep her alive, she died, and that's all I knew. So you go to the hospital, what's the scene like when you arrive there, outside, for example? Well, the scene was quite strange. First of all, in Paris, the streets were full. When I got to the hospital, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in the road, all pinned back. And I went into the hospital, and it was probably the wrong word for me to use, but it was chaos. When you say chaos, Colin, what, what do you mean? People on the move, you know, people walking around. Who are these people? You know what I mean? You walk into somewhere, you expect it to be serenely quiet. But no, there were policemen, there were officials, there was embassy officials. It was just... Perhaps it's the wrong word for me to use, but there was a lot of people. And was it easy to get in? I mean, I just wondered. You yeah, just... no problem. Yeah, because the, the embassy staff took me straight in. Yeah. And I had a policeman with me. I was taken upstairs. It was like a short corridor with rooms off it, the sister's office, where uh, Mr Moss, the um, consul general, was in charge. So you go to see Mr Moss, and then where is the princess then? 
I said, look, I'm, I used to be an inspector with, with the royal family, who I was, but I'm not now, but I am representing the private secretary of the princess, so I am his words and his ears. Because when you walk in, people who don't know me, you know, who are you? Could have been anybody, couldn't I? So uh, we established who I was, a couple of phone calls, and then he said, I'll take you to see the princess. We walked down a very short corridor, and there was a policeman standing there, but there were people coming out of the room, and I thought, what, what is happening here? I don't know who they were. And as I walked in, there was a guy bowing at the end of the bed. I mean, that was happening. People were walking in to pay their respects. I walked in, and there was the boss in bed. Ordinary bed, ordinary room, covered up. Looked like she was asleep. Looked as if she was asleep. Then I decided, right, click. Let's start some work. And I said, I, I don't think people should be coming in and out of this room. I think it should be kept totally clear. He explained that Levington's, the uh, Royal Undertakers, would be here at five. It wasn't even lunchtime then. And um, I said, well, we need to secure this room, not have anybody in. So nobody now is going into the room. It was secure. You said that she looked asleep. Did she have any noticeable injuries? <clears throat> no. Obviously there was because the cover was pulled right up to her chin and uh, she had a slight mark on her right face that, that I can remember. Um, hair was a bit dishevelled but um, and, and that was it. And I understand that even as she was lying there there were photographers trying to get pictures of her, weren't there? I looked out the windows and could see people on roofs. Couldn't believe it. What the hell was happening? You know, I don't think they knew where we were because it's a big hospital and a lot of windows. But they were obviously trying to get shots. There weren't any curtains there. Immediately called, we brought some light blankets in and we put the blankets at the window. And it was a damn hot day. It was August and it was hot. Extremely hot. So we got the, the room covered up because the room then became even hotter. Why was she in a normal hospital room? That's unusual, isn't it? I, I had asked why the, the princess was in bed and not in the mortuary where we could secure it, but... Uh, no, they weren't allowed to because somebody from the palace had said she must not be touched or moved until Levington's arrived. The embalming of the princess's body was to become a major focus point for conspiracy theorists in years to come as they accused the royal family of using the practice, which was traditional for members of the family, to hide evidence of her murder. But we'll have more on that in later episodes. So, Colin, it was a hot summer's day and Diana was in a hospital room rather than a morgue, as you said. It was very hot and you were worried about what it would do to the princess's body. I, then the next move I made was to call for fans to cool the room down. So they bought me uh, stands. So I plugged them in, turned them on, turned round and to my horror, I thought just for that second in my life that the princess was still alive because her hair was moving and her eyelids were moving. And just for that millimetre of a second, my heart dropped. And I had to turn away and turn to the wall, and Paul did as well. We were both absolutely, just couldn't, it's only going in a flash that this lady's alive. And I, I quickly clicked myself together, turned around, of course, she wasn't alive, it was just the... Uh, the air pumping out of the fans that gave us this uh, idea, but that was probably the worst moment of, uh, has been the worst moment of my life, apart from my own mother and father. 
that must have been quite a moment for you both. Did you take time then to mourn her at all? That, that moment, you know, when you this is my boss. I'm working hard to try and get everything done and people informed, had to inform Balmoral, had to inform the palace, had to inform everybody thinking that was going between Mr. Moss and myself. People were rigging in by the million, as you can imagine. And there we were in a room with the boss in a bed, very, very hot room with the crowds outside getting bigger. And I couldn't do much more, really, except to ask why the undertakers hadn't been allowed in, to which I got a very sharp report that they're not allowed to. They'd look after me or you and anybody else. Anybody that dies, they're there to just take care. But not this lady. They couldn't go in. They weren't allowed. Somebody from London had said that they weren't allowed. I then rang Mr Gibbons and said, Mr Gibbons, I'm convinced that these two undertakers, the lady and the gentleman, are very good. They work for the hospital. The boss just wasn't tidying up in that room. And permission was given for them to go in, not to do much. I went in with Paul. Paul helped with the hair. They did a little bit of whatever they do, makeup and that. And The princess before then had looked a little bit down and miserable as you can imagine but after they did it i don't like talking about this but this happened to my mother when my mother died she looked very sad and when the undertakers had just tidied her up she looked my mother again and the princess now because i was thinking well the prince is coming the family's coming we really want the boss in good form and uh, we weren't going to the mortuary so there we were i think that was the first time i'd drawn breath since about one o'clock In that room in the Salpetria Hospital with Colin and Paul Burrell were two priests brought in to be with the princess and to provide spiritual support for those who came to see her that day. One of those priests was Father Yves-Marie Clochard Busset, the Catholic chaplain for the hospital that night. He spoke to us at his parish church in Paris. Father Clochard, where were you? when you received the call to say you were needed at Diana's bedside? I was at home. I was sleeping. It was uh, 2 uh, to a.m. Uh, in the night. And uh, someone from the hospital called me. And uh, I was uh, very uh, surprised by the reason uh, of this call. And uh, I didn't believe it was uh, about uh, Princess uh, Diana. And um, I hung up because uh, I, th- I was thinking the, the person who called me was uh, drunk. And uh, after that, uh, someone tell, told me uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's really, it's true. Uh, Princess Diana is uh, between life and death. And we have to go very fast uh, to the hospital. And uh, I went to, to the hospital and uh, I found there the ambassador of Great Britain and uh, one minister of, Fran- of France, of uh, French government, and he, he asked me to, to stay here, uh, waiting for a, a, a future decision, uh, because they don't know what they have to do uh, for, the, for, the, for the moment. And uh, after that, um, I stayed two hours alone. When you first saw Diana, how did she look? Her face was very calm, very quiet. How did it make you feel? I was uh, upset. 
because uh, I, I, I was knowing nothing about uh, this uh, woman, I, was, I knew she was a princess, but um, uh, I knew that she had uh, children. And uh, I was thinking um, mainly uh, at her voice. And you ended up staying 12 or 13 hours with Dinah in that room, basically half a day. And she had a number of visitors, didn't she? I remember um, Madame, uh, Madame Chirac. She, uh, she asked me to, to pray with her. And uh, the ambassador came a, a lot of times, some other officers, whose I don't remember the name, and um, some functionaries from the British Embassy. Uh, and President Chirac uh, was coming in the afternoon. Uh, and I stayed there as, uh, until, uh, until 5 p.m. when uh, Prince Charles uh, is uh, arriving with the, the Diana sisters. At the same time, Colin Tebbit and Paul Burrell were overseeing arrangements for Diana. The Alfired family were working to repatriate Dodie's body. Michael Cole stayed in London handling the torrent of press requests about the accident. But his boss, Dodie's father, Mohammed Alfired, flew to Paris using his private helicopter, meaning he was one of the first to arrive at the hospital. Mohammed went to the hospital where the princess was. He went to see her. He told me that she looked very beautiful and at peace. But he said it was so terrible to see such a lovely woman and such a great friend of the family dead in the prime of life. Though he obviously visited Diana, it was his son who he was there to bring home. That must have been really difficult for him. It's far too painful for Mohammed to remember what happened. I do know what happened. He has asked me not to describe the full details of how he found his son. But he was very badly injured in the crash. And of course, according to Muslim right, Dodi's body had to be washed and prepared for burial. Fortunately, Mohammed's younger brother, Salah, who lives in Monaco, had managed to get to Paris and uh, he supervised this ritual, everything that needed to be done. And then Mohammed was faced with a difficult situation. Dodi had to be brought back to Britain. Of course, he couldn't call on the services of the British Embassy or anyone else. But when the body was released, although initially both deaths had been classified as suspicious, the coffin containing Dodi was taken to the heliport in Paris, just off the peripherique. Mohammed would not have his son put in the luggage compartment and the coffin was placed between the two rows of facing seats in the back of the helicopter. Colin, did you see anything of Mohammed Al-Fayed or try to see Dodi at all? Because he was in the same hospital, wasn't he? I tried to go and see Mr Al-Fayed if he was in the hospital. I am a guide at my local cathedral. I am 
semi-religious and I liked to say a prayer, but I wasn't allowed down, so we couldn't go and see him. So we sat in the office watching the door of the princess's room for the rest of the time. When did the royal undertakers, Leverton and Sons, arrive? We've been nine hours there. Down the corridor comes a coffin with six guys and Mr Levington all in morning suit marching down the corridor. And, and I thought, oh, God, you know. And, and, and I went up to him and I said, look, the undertakers have gone in, so I hope everything's all right. And he went in, he came back out and said, Mr Tubbett, they've done a fine job. Thank you very much. Your words to that effect, which brought relief back to me. The Prince of Wales then came down. He walked straight up to myself. I know him and he knows me. Colin, thank you very much for coming. Uh, how are you? I quickly explained the best I could what was happening. He said, are there any uh, members of the religious fraternity here? I said, yes, we have them in the next room. The two sisters were now talking to Paul. He said, I would like to go into the room myself with the clergy and the sisters. Is that all right? And then in that time, somebody said to me, how are you getting back then? And I said, I hadn't even given it a thought, sir. I've got a shilling in my pocket. He said, well, he won't be going on the raw plane, of course. I didn't know who this gentleman was. And uh, I thought, OK, you know, if you don't want me, then you don't want me. But then the, the prince came out, walked up to me. And he said, Colin, thank you very much for all you've done. And you will be coming with me, um, Mr Burrell, back on the plane. Did he look visibly shocked himself? Or no, was very his professional, tremendously professional, you know, correct, absolutely diplomatic, I've called it. I just wonder whether before the princess was put into the coffin and you know, taken to the airport, whether you had some time with her alone, maybe you spoke to her or you said a prayer for her. Yeah, I said a prayer and um, Paul put it, he had a, a photograph which he laid on the coffin as well. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it was five or six hours before anybody else of importance came down and took over. We were sort of with Mr Moss and the nurse in charge, you know. It must have been quite a day for you. If I might just tell you a funny story, or well, not a funny, but a sad story. My phone went, and I answered it, and it was my eldest son. And he said, oh, Dad, you OK? And I said, yeah, I'm fine, son. I don't know what time it is. I'm sorry I haven't rung you. And he, he said, they're reporting you as dead. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we've just got up. We brought the paper, turned the radio on, and they're saying that the gentleman driving the princess has died. And I said, no, son, I'm, I'm fine. I'm awfully sorry I haven't rung the family. Would you please get on with ringing everybody and telling them from my point of view, I'm OK. So that was amazing. I'd just written everything else off of that day, just looking after the boss and working with the boss. And it just shows you how your mind goes, doesn't it? Emotions were clearly running high inside the hospital as family members of both Diana and Dodie came to terms with their loved one's deaths. But outside the hospital and across the world, news of the horror crash had spread and a popular outpouring of grief saw people flooding to Buckingham Palace and Kensington Gardens to lay flowers. Not for the first time, floral tributes are the immediate symbol of a national outpouring of grief. You know, you just can't believe it, can you? I can't believe it now, even, you know. Shocked. I just wanted to be somewhere where she used to go. That's right, yeah. I'll be honest with you, the only people we think of at the moment is uh, William and Harry. It's terrible, you feel so alone and grieved, you know, as if you've lost someone. You know, that's the feeling.
In Paris too, citizens of the French capital lined the streets to say a final farewell to the people's princess. The streets of Paris were amazing. They were full. It was an amazing thing for, to drive through Paris mm. with everybody lining the route and applauding. It was, it was a wonderful moment. I felt it very, very moving. And then you went with the coffin on the royal plane, is that right? Along with Prince Charles and Diana's sisters? I got on the plane and the two sisters decided that they wanted to sit with us. The prince and his uh, staff of two or three sat in a different compartment of the plane and we flew back. How did Diana's sisters cope with it? It must have been very emotional for them. Yeah, they were emotional but correct. I mean, they, they, I think in that sort of family, it's bred in that you... You don't collapse in front of people unless you may be private, but you've got, uh, you know, they were sad and they were down and uh, had a million questions to ask me. And uh, I answered as many as I could. As the princess's body was flown back to the UK, preparations were already beginning for her funeral. As the head of royalty protection, Di Davies was having to deal with the huge press interest, both at Kensington Palace and more than 500 miles away at Balmoral, where the Queen and the Princes, William and Harry, were still staying. Di, what was your priority at that moment? To coordinate royalty protection as far as our principles were concerned, to ensure that at Balmoral things went as they should do, and that that aspect carried on. Diana's body was brought back to RAF Northolt on the outskirts of West London. Colin, what was it like as you drove into central London? So as was Paris, as was here. Not a car moving, people everywhere on bridges, all the way down the A40. That was emotional. I was now beginning to get emotional. You know, I'd now done everything, everything I could have done in that time, phone calls, talking to people, trying to arrange things. Now I'm sitting in a car, peaceful. Until, we, of course, we got to the mortuary where I got to a point that, one, I was tired and two, I was probably um, a little bit overwrought with it all. But managed to uh, keep myself together and um, left the princess at the mortuary with everybody and one of my guys who stood guard all night. Diana and Dodie were brought separately to Fulham Mortuary. But while plans for the princess's funeral were set for the following weekend, Dodie was to be buried that very same day. For Mohammed, the difficulties went on because a burial plot had to be purchased. This was done at the Brookwood Cemetery in Surrey. Muslim burials should be carried out on the day of death. And it was dark, getting towards midnight, when um, Mohammed, with two of his brothers and all the people who'd helped him in Paris during the day, witnessed the burial of his firstborn son. It had been a very long day, 24 hours, virtually. The week between Diana's death and her funeral saw the country in mourning and the papers were cover to cover on the story of her death. You may have seen the photos of flowers piled high outside Buckingham Palace, but royal biographer Penny Juna has very vivid memories of London that week. 
everybody seemed to be walking about almost in shock, I would say. During the, that week, I remember being in London around the palaces and feeling that if you, know, you were not carrying a bunch of flowers to lay in tribute, almost in, in danger of being lynched, the atmosphere was very, very angry as the week progressed. And where, in your opinion, was that anger being directed? Who were the public blaming, if anyone, for this? Well, I, I mean, I think that the media helped direct the anger, but I think it was aimed at the royal family. Initially, people blamed the Prince of Wales. You know, the, the charge was that if he hadn't had his mistress, if he'd been in love with Diana, if he'd, he'd looked after Diana and never divorced her, then she wouldn't have been in that tunnel and she would be alive. And then as the week progressed, I think the anger started to be levelled at the Queen because the country was wanting their monarch to sort of spearhead the grief and I think that what was missing during that week was this figurehead expressing anything at all. The Queen was invisible. The Queen did eventually go on TV, but I think that was after the then new Prime Minister, Tony Blair, had described Diana as the people's princess. So it was a full week, really, before the Queen appeared. And she came down to London on the Friday in preparation for the funeral. And... That was the, the evening where she went out into the crowds outside the gates of Buckingham Palace and she looked at the flowers and the tributes and she spoke to people and she then made this broadcast, one of the rare occasions where she's spoken other than at Christmas. We have seen throughout Britain and around the world an overwhelming expression of sadness at Diana's death. We have all been trying in our different ways to cope. It is not easy to express a sense of loss, since the initial shock is often succeeded by a mixture of other feelings, disbelief, incomprehension, anger, and concern for those who remain. We have all felt those emotions in these last few days. I think that address to the nation saved the day. It certainly saved the monarchy, in my view. I just wonder whether that sort of vacuum in terms of the a response from the Queen helped create the environment where conspiracy theories would flourish in due course, because they started pretty quickly, from my recollection. Yes, they, they did. I mean, I think that the reason for the conspiracy theories was because people couldn't take in the enormity of what had happened. They, they thought that these people are permanent. You know, Diana was, was a huge figure in people's lives. People felt that they knew her. And the idea that she should just die, very simply, in a car crash, didn't make sense to them. You know, they had to find a reason to explain it. And the only reason that they could come up with was that, that there was some conspiracy, that someone had killed her. On the 6th of September 1997, Diana's funeral was held in Westminster Abbey. Though it wasn't an official state funeral, 
the estimated 2.5 billion people who watched it around the world would have been forgiven for thinking it was. Two million people lined the streets of central London to mourn Diana's death. Crowds dashing to catch up, and still so silent. Though I believe you weren't directly involved in the planning for the funeral itself, you were involved in the security planning, weren't you, Di? And it wasn't straightforward. So there was a controversy between the royal family and indeed her family as to what kind of funeral as it were, but it became apparent, and I think there were political issues on this, that uh, the public were, uh, wanted a, a proper state funeral, as it were. And again, that takes planning, that takes coordination. Anna got, if you recall, there was a huge press. I mean, you could not not move for pressmen, cameras. The world descended on Buckingham Palace and various other establishments. And again, trying to keep some kind of handle on, on the growing hysteria, the press. Uh, there was anti-press feelings. There were reporters being jostled. You know, it, it was just something I've never seen, and I've had 52 years' experience now worldwide on dealing with a variety of crises. I'd never seen anything like it. Oh, you couldn't believe it. Colin Tebbit was in the Abbey that day, along with the rest of Diana's private staff. And Lord Spencer sat us right at the front, right at the front, which was amazing. We were treated by the family fantastically. An honour, obviously, to be there, seated near Earl Spencer and looked after by him. But what memories do you have of the funeral itself? Earl Spencer made a very moving speech, didn't he? You stand tall enough as a human being of unique qualities, not to need to be seen as a saint. Indeed, to sanctify your memory would be to miss out on the very core of your being, your wonderfully mischievous sense of humour with a laugh that bent you double, your joy for life transmitted wherever you took your smile and the sparkle in those unforgettable eyes. There is no doubt that she was looking for a new direction in her life. At that got time. a huge response, didn't it? I was standing there with Liz. Liz is Colin's wife. I said, Liz, it's pouring of rain. Well, it might get soaked. But it was clapping, and the clapping came up, and then it entered the abbey, and then the noise came up, and then threw into the choir. And I was clapping, and everybody around me was clapping. And it was just an amazing noise. What an emotional moment that was. That was fantastic showed what people thought to the most beautiful lady in the world who did an awful lot into altering this uh, family of ours. Diana was buried later that same day in a private ceremony at Althorpe, her family estate. The family stayed in touch with a number of people I've spoken to in this episode, possibly grateful for the help they gave to Diana during her final moments. The Catholic priest who sat by Diana's side in the hospital, Father Clochard, wrote to her mother, Francis Shankid, after her death. Am I right in saying that you later found out that Diana's mother, Mrs Shankid, had converted to Catholicism, so you wrote her a letter because you thought she would like to know that a Catholic priest had been by her side when she died. Is that right? Yeah, I wrote a letter very, very uh, formal 
with a lot of details. And uh, two days, um, I, I was thinking this letter will lose in a lot of <laughs> letters. And she, two days after, I received an answer from uh, Mrs. Shankid, very, very, uh, uh, very kind, very, uh, very, uh, very interesting. By my presence, I've had the presence of a Catholic priest, um, and because she was a Catholic. And um, it has been the beginning of, uh, I can't say, a, a friendship. And do you still have the letter? Yeah, I, I am also. also yeah. So you wrote regularly? Yeah, from, during four or five years, I don't remember now. Uh, and she came a lot of times, in, not a lot of times, but she came uh, five or six, six times. You've been listening to Last Days of Diana, a Beyond Reasonable Doubt podcast series for Mail Plus, with me, Stephen Wright. Next time. The Mirror chose today to publish the full text of a letter Diana gave Paul Burrell. The name of the man she suspected of conspiring to kill her was blacked out. Today it was revealed she'd written, My Husband. Authorities now reviewing the new and sensational claim that she was actually murdered by the British government. If you had wanted to kill the Princess of Wales, that was the most inefficient way of, of doing it. I think it's something like 65 or 70% of the people, certainly in this country, thought there had been a conspiracy and that the death of someone like Diana, who was an icon, of course, couldn't be explained away other than the fact that there was some foul play taking place. As a father who lost his son and fighting for 10 years, at last we're going to have a jury from ordinary people and I hope to reach the decision which I believe that my son and Prince Diana have been murdered. If you've enjoyed listening, please consider telling your friends. And if you'd like more on this and other stories, you can visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more, including previous Beyond Reasonable Doubt episodes.